This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Open New Reviews. Open New gives Shopify brands the tools to import their reviews from Amazon or eBay and helps them convert up to 40% more customers by supercharging their reviews with the power of AI. Stay tuned for a very special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 65 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Achel Patel, the co-founder and CEO of Cabinet Health. Cabinet Health is a sustainable healthcare brand on a mission to provide high quality and fairly priced medicines directly to your door. In this episode, Achel shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in a family of doctors to working as a sandwich artist at Subway to launching and growing Cabinet to over $13 million in revenue in just three years. He talks with us about the lessons he learned from meeting with over 300 investors, which led to raising $5.2 million, and how the role as a founder evolves into CEO and how they differ. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Chell. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story in building Cabinet Health. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me on the show. So let's start from early days. I know you have a very significant, you know, family kind of story, um, your history into even getting into this business. So I definitely want to start with, you know, how you grew up. Where were you born? What did your parents do? Did you have siblings? Let's hear about childhood. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way I describe my childhood is I grew up in a family of healthcare entrepreneurs and healers. So for me, what that really meant is being in a family of parents as physicians, uh, aunts and uncles in the pharma space, um, literally spent childhood summers in a over-the-counter medicine factory that my grandfather built in India. Wow. Uh, and so really, the, the early days of my childhood were highlighted by this deep connection to the world of healthcare but from many different vantage points, um, everywhere from literally the manufacturing of products that we take to alleviate pain, such as acetaminophene, um, to rounding in the hospital and spending summers working in my parents' doctor's offices, uh, scanning charts into digital formats. And really for me, what that highlighted was this um, amazing opportunity that healthcare provides us to help people live healthier, happier lives. Um, you know, Tactically, I was born in New York City, Grew up in Virginia uh, and have lived in Washington, D.C. and spent a lot of time in New York uh, ever since. So for me, it's been this interesting blend of growing up with parents as immigrants uh, who lived in New York when they first moved to the U.S., uh, eventually settling in a quieter town in Virginia. And then over the years, really bridging that gap between you know what was their experience like growing up in India. I've been spending a lot of time, especially before the pandemic in India, working with factories that are literally family or de facto family. And so it's been a fun adventure to kind of see them them grow as individuals, learn from them, uh, and then really connect the dots back to my family's lineage in the world of medicine manufacturing as well as care. So it sounds like both your parents were doctors? That's right. What kind of doctors? 
Uh, my mother is a pulmonologist, so it's been a, a busy year for her. She focuses on critical care uh, pulmonology. So really, I actually have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, so she's a she's a lung doctor, um, and okay, so lungs. we have patients who are in the, the ICU for lung related conditions like COVID, mm -hmm. pneumonia, etc. She's the one taking care of them, and was a really critical part of. Uh, developing my vantage point on on life, but also like the way that care should be delivered. She's still the first person I call when I'm sick, whether it's a real sickness or I just need to talk to my mom. And uh, it's something that I've always wanted to emulate, like even in the business world for all of our customers. Um, and then on the other side, my my dad is a cardiologist, a heart doctor. Um, and so it's been really fun to to learn from both of them. I think you know, in an early age, just understanding what it's like to have someone who's knowledgeable and, and loving take care of you. Um, mm -hmm. But at this later juncture in life, actually understanding the importance of being able to have access to that information, to that care is really unique and unfortunately not the norm. Mm -hmm. And so that's been something that's really been uh, from formulative in, in my upbringing as well. And so do you have any siblings? I do. I have uh, an older brother, lives in Dallas, Texas, works at a big healthcare company. And so uh, speaking of getting the different vantage points of the world of healthcare, um, he's he's in a different part of it and something that's always uh, helped me learn uh, about the business side of healthcare as well. So focuses more on, on building, scaling, and acquiring startups uh, into a large healthcare system. Oh, cool. And so when you were a kid, I mean, did you play doctor all the time? Did you want to be a doctor? What was uh, the dream as a kid? Yeah, for for my family, there's always this uh, keep the door open to becoming a physician mentality. And mm -hmm. so I would say that I was interested by many things. I, I ended up studying history in college, but, uh, you know, to my parents' delight, I also did this pre-med track. But few years into into college realized that going to med school and and having the responsibility of taking care of patients every single day wasn't wasn't the best fit for me and so knew I wanted to get back into healthcare in some way shape or form um really had this unique vantage point of understanding the pharma manufacturing space seeing how physicians interact with patients and also the business side and um, to me, being a doctor is something that I really admire and respect, but I also believe it's something you have to do with your whole heart in it to actually take care of humans. And yeah, for me, while I care about that, it's not something that I knew was my calling. Yeah. Um, so you went to the University of Virginia and you said you studied history. Um, what kind of jobs were you doing while you were in college? What were some of your first jobs? Maybe it was even before college, but what did your kind of you know early days in working look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple, a couple experiences. So one was I spent summers in my parents' doctor's offices, uh, literally scanning patient charts into digital format. This is when the electronic health record was just first coming around, and instead of having some sort of automated system or, or clear cut way to bring the, the physical charts into the digital world, I would spend summers scanning documents one by one and. Uh, pretty remarkable that that was a, actually a, a summer job, but that's what I did initially. Um, and then I spent some summers working at Subway as well. So uh, I was a sandwich artist uh, in my hometown, um, which was a lot of fun. Got to talk to people all day long who were coming in and yeah, um, just building relationships with the same people every single day. And so- And making those some are my great sandwiches. Job. Yeah, exactly. So if, if any of the listeners want to have a good uh, lunch, feel free to come over to my apartment. I'm happy to make some sandwiches. <laughs> Inspired by Subway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So what about when you graduated? What was your um, first job out of college? Yeah, so I, I like many students, uh, wasn't totally sure, you know, what I wanted to do. I had this mm -hmm. lineage in, in healthcare, but also had no business experience uh, and really wanted to just start to understand how does the actual working world frankly work and, and how could, how does the world of business work? So I, I jumped directly into management consulting out of college. I worked at Deloitte Consulting in DC. And I would say the highlight of that experience was within the first couple of months there, uh, I met my now co-founder, Russ. So Russ was starting this program to think about how do you channel the skill sets of Deloitte consultants to help build and scale social enterprises. Um, for those who don't know what social enterprises are, they're 
small businesses that prioritize not only uh, profitability, but also solving for social and environmental issues uh, within the communities they're operating in uh, and beyond. And what Russ and I really focused on at Deloitte was how do we actually go around the world, partner with social enterprises, understanding you know, what are some of the creative business models that are being deployed that allow these businesses to be profitable, but also generate uh, social or environmental impact. And we we had a lot of fun. Uh, our first project together was literally going on a bus tour around Bosnia, running innovation tournaments to, to really take uh, ideas, turn them into effectively like $500 seed investments for community development projects, and then scale them from there. And so I had a very unique path in that I joined uh, a management consulting firm, but was very fortunate to meet um, one of my closest friends and co-founders now within my first couple months. That would have been eight, nine years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think really set the foundation for some of my beliefs now on how to build business, which are around uh, ultimately as a steward of, of society and then just like my vantage point is if you build a business, especially in the world of healthcare, that isn't prioritizing like consumers well-being, then um, that's directly oppositional to like the purpose of being a business. And so it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) You're in healthcare. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I feel like a lot of um, people I talk to that have been in the consulting world, their experiences are not so positive, but you seem to have had a really unique experience in having, you know, the ability to build and scale social enterprises and community development projects. Um, How did that happen that you were able to kind of be in a totally different world, I feel like of consulting? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was a, a journey of learning what entrepreneurship was throughout that process. So, uh, I was, frankly, just very lucky to have stumbled upon someone who was already trying to build this program in Russ uh, in my first couple months on the job. But mm-hmm. what I really learned quickly is that if you understand the needs of the broader business in a management consulting firm, priorities are how do we develop our talent, which is the greatest asset in a services-based business, and how do we then tell that story effectively to attract more talent and to attract more clients? And uh, what I learned to do, I'd say fairly adeptly pretty early and with great mentorship from Russ was how do you build a business case to create, build, scale programs that allow you to work on things that you want by actually crafting that business case in a way that makes sense for the larger entity you're in. So mm-hmm. Russ and I spent a few years just on a yearly basis pitching the, the now CEO of Deloitte on how we can channel partnerships with social enterprises to motivate and scale like talent development, but mm-hmm. also learn business models that we can then translate into our Fortune 500 client base. Uh, and ultimately, we just created our own jobs for uh, probably about three to four years before wow. and starting cabinet. So this is kind of like an idea you guys had and you were pitching it basically, like, let us go off and do this. That's exactly right. So yeah. we uh, we were able to to build the business case for why this was important for Deloitte mm-hmm. and funding for that uh, in the form of hours as well as kind of smaller investment dollars and then harness that into our full-time jobs. And uh, I would say a really important part of that, uh, which I still, I think, carry forward as a lesson today is we had a ton of mentorship and like champions around us who mm-hmm. were supportive of this, who we got input on for these business cases. So by the time we were pitching them, they were already kind of this done deal. And I think that was my first understanding of like, how do you get buy-in for yeah. developing business cases before you're even in the room pitching them? Very, very good learnings, even for fundraising, for sales. I mean, that's a, a really awesome early learning that you you got there. Um, so after Deloitte, where, what happened after that? Yeah, so after a number of years of building, I guess what folks would call purpose-driven business, business models, mm-hmm. Um, I had shared a lot of my personal background with with Russ along that journey of wanting to work in healthcare in some way, shape, or form. And so towards the end of my tenure at Deloitte, what I was really thinking about is, you know, are there ways to harness this supply chain, 55 years of over-the-counter manufacturing expertise, 
to build a, a more sustainable and quality-driven OTC medicine experience. I use a ton of allergy medicine, like the challenge of navigating the aisles of Walgreens and CVS um, was very real to me. And it was very counter to the experience I had with my mother as my caregiver, like growing up um, whenever I was sick. And so I thought, let's start simply with just seeing if consumers even want to buy uh, a new medicine brand online. And what we, what we launched in late 2017 uh, was a white labeled medicine brand on Amazon intent was to understand one, can we activate our supply chain and actually harness the manufacturers that are de facto or actual family to bring high quality products to market? Two, are customers even willing to buy from new brands in the space? We've been marketed from the largest pharmaceutical brands for decades, if not more. Are customers comfortable buying from an alternative if it's sensibly priced, more sustainable, equal quality? Uh, and then three, the intent of selling those white labeled products on Amazon was, what well, can we just learn from customers? I have literally responded to thousands and thousands of customer service questions, read every single piece of feedback that anyone gives us uh, on the Amazon marketplace, as well as reviews, uh, which has both positive and negative <laughs> impacts on, on my health. But what it really led to was this understanding that you know, there is a real market opportunity here that that business line grew rapidly with no upfront funding for uh, month over month for the first 12 months I was in market. And I remember just having so many conversations via, via email with customers around really fundamental questions uh, around health that were frankly appalling to me. Customers who didn't understand uh, the directions on their medicine, customers who didn't understand the interactions between their OTCs and their prescriptions, customers who mm. bought the wrong product altogether because we haven't done a good enough job as a society helping people understand the difference between ibuprofen, acetaminophen, uh, and your next active ingredient pain reliever. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because even with just COVID, you know, getting vaccinated, they're like, take Tylenol don't take Advil. And you're like, why aren't they the same thing? Like, honestly. <laughs> um, so you're right. There is a very big lack of knowledge around like what the difference is between basics like Tylenol and Advil. Um, so this is interesting. So in 2017, you basically launched this to kind of test this out. It sounds like you had a bunch of questions that you wanted to find answers to, to basically vet the idea and concept, realize that this is something that's working. Um, where did you take it from there? And were you called cabinet at the time? And if so, how'd you come up with the name cabinet? I always like to ask, mm -hmm. you know, how founders come up with the names of their companies. Cause I think, you know, as a consumer, it sounds so obvious. It's like, ah, your medicine cabinet. Right. But when you're in it, it is so hard sometimes to name your company. And so what, what was that moment like? Uh, so we had this funny moment where, Russ and I were in this room putting together a list of potential company names, and we had probably a hundred of them. And one of them is called like the medicine cabinet. And we thought it was really cool. And <laughs> fast forward a couple of months and we're working with this brand agency that we were connected to through friends. And uh, they're like, guys, you shouldn't be the medicine cabinet. You should just be cabinet. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. That's amazing. It's like, that moment in the social network where Justin Timberlake's like, you're not the Facebook, you're like Facebook. Right. And it was, a big, <laughs> it was a big revelation for us and I, for the, the folks we were working with, they, they were surprised at how surprised we were, but we love the name. It made sense. Um, and I think it's emblematic of the fact that as we look at this space, it's not just about your medicine or um, specific products, but how do we actually reimagine like your health, everything that's in your cabinet, um, and for us, it's been representative of that ambition from, from day one. And we were fortunate enough to have much cooler people than us help us with the name. Awesome. And you guys have grown quite a bit, $13 million in revenue over the past three years. Um, you are also just are launching, your website says, the world's first fully compostable medicine system. Um, why hasn't anyone else done this already? Why? Why? you know, it's kind of shocking, right? That you guys are the first in the world. That's a, 
It's a great question. And it's something that was surprising for Russ and I as well. I think our physical health and the environment around us are inextricably linked. And yet in the world of healthcare, there are no sustainable options today. Um, there are 200 billion or so single use plastic bottles produced by the pharmaceutical industry every year. One to 2% of those are recycled. The rest end up in oceans, landfills, and, and other places. And back into the environment that we breathe air from, that we swim in, you name it. And so as Russ and I were building this company, and like one of our learnings along the journey was even just seeing the sheer amount of plastic that we produce to launch this brand was terrifying to us. When you build a business in pharmaceuticals, your options are HDPE plastic. Like that is known to be safe. It's known to be stable for products. And if to your question of like, why has no one else done this? It's because that's been the norm for decades. And that's just what we default to. The second kind of part of that is that it's exceptionally complex to, to innovate in this space. The supply chains are global, they're fragmented. Bringing more sustainable products to market requires regulatory expertise, requires buy-in from your entire supply chain from factory through consumer, uh, and requires an actual level of resilience and ambition to spend years actually being able to bring a new packaging format to market and having conviction that is important, either because of your, your personal values or because you have enough customers reinforcing it, ideally a combination of both. And so what you know made you guys think that that was something that would be super important to consumers? Is there, did you do any tests or anything to kind of validate that? I mean, obviously, I mean, I think everybody realizes mm -hmm. after you've announced it to the world, like, hey, this is what we're doing, like fully um, compostable, you know, medicine system. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I want to buy in on that because that's the better way to do things. <laughs> you know, but I think, you know, how did you maybe validate that that's something consumers care about? Yeah, so, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the early inkling to do this was very personal. So. We were just running our first production run of cabinet products in these plastic bottles. Russ had to go back to visit his family in Singapore to take care of something. And the pollution was terrible there. He was taking his wife there to show her the city for the first time. At the same time, 12 hours forward in New York, I was in a warehouse sifting through piles and piles of plastic bottles that had been shipped to us incorrectly. And I just remember this moment where Russ is calling me. He's like, hey, man, I'm in Singapore. There's a bunch of pollution. I'm sorry I can't be there. would help you like sift through these bottles. Uh, flip side of the frame, I'm in a warehouse sifting through hundreds of thousands of plastic bottles, being like, this is absolutely ridiculous and stupid. Mm -hmm. And both of us kind of a week later coming together and, and thinking through, you know, do, would we really be proud of building a healthcare company that's contributing to environmental issues that eventually lead to pollution in Singapore because plastic's being burned in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And do we really want to spend our lives sifting through plastic bottles in warehouses? Mm -hmm. And, you know, after that first personal wake-up call and realization, we just started talking to folks who were doing research on sustainable products in the world of consumer goods. We called up a researcher at NYU Stern who had been publishing reports on the growth of sustainable products in CPG. And what we started to see was that in the last five years, sustainable products have led the majority of market growth in consumer products. Yet in the world of over-the-counter medicine and pharmaceuticals, there were no options. Mm. So there's about 16% of market share in our adjacent categories, nothing in the world of medicine. And, and for us, that was our opportunity that corroborated, you know, what we'd feel felt personally with actual market data. And then we just started talking to our existing customers. So we've been in market, as you mentioned, for a few, few years now, called up our customers, asking them, you know, what would make you a cabinet customer for life? And the common themes that kept emerging were having a more sustainable product system and having a way to ensure that our products are, are higher quality or equal quality what's in the market today. And so those are really the signals for us, like one, strong personal conviction, two, actually seeing rapid market growth in this space around us, and then three, just talking to customers and having them tell us straight up that if you build a sustainable product, I will stick with you because no one else in the market is even trying.
We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. A major blocker for Shopify brands is getting reviews from Amazon, eBay, or AliExpress into Shopify to boost conversions and generate more sales. With OpenNew, simply import those reviews in just a few clicks, and once your reviews are in, OpenNew works 24-7 to select the best reviews at scale. With OpenNew, you can receive up to 10% conversion uplift compared to other competitors. Remember, you only have one chance to make a good first impression, so give your Shopify store the best chance of success with open new reviews. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can get 20% off for a lifetime on all open new plans for a limited time by going to opennew.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's O-P-I-N-E-W.com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. Not only that, but Cogsy has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back in stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash steroid to CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash steroid to CEO. Yeah. That's interesting. So you guys are in a fight against single-use plastic, which is amazing, and promoting sustainability. Um, but you're also the first to do batch-level quality testing. What does that even mean? I had no idea that there were so many drug recalls. There's about three every day. How's that possible? How do we, I mean, <laughs> is that just like stuff that's buried under the rug? I mean, why are there so many recalls? Yeah, so to to shed light for folks listening on how complex the pharmaceutical manufacturing world is, your average medicine cabinet of five to 10 products might have 20, 30, 50 factories involved in getting you those products to your your door. Um, There are different folks who are making raw products, taking those raw products and turning them into tablets, different supply chain elements that are then packaging them and then eventually distributing them. Even the largest retailers in the United States don't produce their own products. And really what that's led to is this really global, very fragmented supply chain complex, which is fundamentally just hard to actually ensure quality around. Mm -hmm. The FDA, I think, does a great job of being able to put processes and structures in place. But if you really just think about the number of factories involved in making products, it's really difficult to be able to ensure that not just the factories, but every individual medicine that you're producing is at the quality that is safe for consumers. And so as we think about our, our push into batch level quality testing, it, are all, it really stemmed from customer, uh, customer learnings uh, first and foremost. So we were on the phone with one of our customers, Liz, who um, has celiac disease, and she was sharing with us how difficult it is to find certified gluten-free medicine. And for us, that was this highlight of, okay, if Liz is having this issue, then there are probably other customers with certain allergies that are also hoping that they have medicine that can be certified that's gluten-free. And what that led us to was this exploration of, okay, are there ways that we can certify that not just at the factory level, but actually at the batch level? There's really, sorry, gluten in medicine? Like, how, how is that even in there? <laughs> Where, is that normal that gluten is in almost every medicine? Is that a thing? It, certain medicines do have gluten. I would say it's not the norm for there to be gluten in medicine, but it is the norm for there not to be 
a verification that there there isn't gluten in a product. And so I think mm. that's where it creates this anxiety and lack of understanding, uh, which for some consumers is a really critical input in terms of understanding what they're putting in their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my husband has a gluten allergy. So now I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> What is what's in this thing? You know, and speaking of what's in there, um, you know, cabinet is free of harmful substances, um, toxins, et cetera. I mean, are those things that we should be worrying about that are in other brands? So really building on you know what batch level testing is, for us, it's a few things. One, it's uh, a certification of the products to be free of glutens and other allergens that are are verified in a third party lab test at the at the batch level, but also certification that products are free of heavy metals, carcinogens, and other contaminants that we as humans uh, should not be putting in our bodies. Mm-hmm. The challenge in the market, as I mentioned today, is that there are so many factories involved that certifying products, even at the brand level, is exceptionally difficult. Um, and so as as we've thought about this problem set, it's how do we think about every single batch of product, certify that it's free of those heavy metals, carcinogens, allergens. And what I would say is that on the balance, most products that are in market today are, are safe for consumption. But what we've learned is that for certain consumers, that that slight chance is actually not acceptable. And we believe that there, there shouldn't be any risk in any product that you take. Yeah, uh, with intent to helping you feel better. Yeah, it's pretty annoying to read ingredient labels all the time. I mean, just like you barely know what the words are and just get so confused. And you're like, why does this have to be so difficult? <laughs> you know, like, why can't we all just speak the same language here and like create products that won't kill us and that aren't toxic and that we shouldn't be having to read the label, basically, you know? And it's just really sad that there's so many of these old school legacy brands that we just have learned that we can't trust. And hence why there's a whole new wave of products, including your brand, you know, that have to exist. Uh, Absolutely. It annoys me. (laughs) It's me so riled up that it's like, why is it like this? I don't understand. (laughs) What are these people doing for years, you know, for years, just like turning in a blind eye. Um, but anyway, so you have raised about $5.2 million over three rounds. Um, you have some awesome investors like Techstars and Pixel Perfect Ventures, the Global Good Fund, SoGal Ventures, and some um, pretty great founders as well. Um, talk to us about what fundraising was like, you know, your challenges and any advice you have. Yeah, absolutely. So the first investor meeting that Russ and I went to was literally in the dining room of one of our earliest investors. His name is Peter. Um, and he's been a supporter of us from day one. But honestly, the, the journey for us has been somewhat hilarious to reflect on. We've probably talked to two to 300 investors at this point, ranging from being in dining rooms all the way through to uh, the top venture firms in, in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. what I would say is that nothing could have really prepared us for that journey. And, and yeah. Ultimately, what we've learned along the way is that uh, a few lessons. Uh, I think the first one is that finding investors who believe in you as humans, first and foremost, um, does a whole lot of good. On days Mm -hmm. where the business is not going well, which you will have, being able to call someone who actually believes in you as a person uh, and not just the business has been fundamentally important to like our well-being and our success over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I would just share with the audience to to not compromise on. If your gut tells you that someone is not the right fit for you, you don't think that in the worst moments they'll have your back, then it's probably not a good person to take investment from. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like lesson one for us. The, the second one is that just because other companies in the market or peers seem to be raising money easily or readily doesn't mean it's a good idea and does not mean that it's going to be an easy process. I think if you want to embark on fundraising, it'll be a full-time job for two, three, four, sometimes even six months for one of the founders, um, mm-hmm. most likely the co-founder and CEO. Yeah. And I think recognizing the impact that has on you as a, as a builder, on the company, on the team around you, and preparing for that is critically important. Mm-hmm. The first time we, Russ and I went out to to raise capital, we did it 
kind of half-assed, like where we would have meetings in between working sessions. And what it led to was this longer lingering process that probably lasted nine months. And Mm. what I would share is that having a very regimented process, lining up your meetings in very particular waves to the point where you're even having 20 investor meetings a week. Yeah. uh, But doing it in a very concentrated period is is really important. So Mm -hmm. the second lesson is if you're going to fundraise, do it with conviction and know that it will take your full time for at least three, three months or so. That'll extend further as your rounds evolve as well. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is that um, third lesson for us is that there's uh, there's no one size fits all capitalization structure. And what I would say is really reflect on like why are you raising money before you go and raise capital? Is it because you're seeing TechCrunch articles and it feels like that's the right thing to do? Is it because you're on Twitter and everyone's doing fundraising announcements of their ten yeah. million dollar? quote unquote, seed around, which is absurd in and of itself. Um, and do you even have a business that needs to be backed by a venture firm or, or even a pre-seed or an angel investor? There are a lot of businesses that I think actually could do equally well without raising capital. And especially if you're in the consumer goods world like us, if you sell a product, it makes money. Uh, really you know, think twice about why you're raising and if there are ways that are that are not just focused on a more heavy, heavily equity-driven route that um, could actually enable you to be more successful in the long run. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and I think this topic is so important, uh, fundraising strategy, having a strategy behind your raise. Because you're right, I think so many founders start out raising like you did, where you're like, oh, I'll take, have a meeting here and there and take a check here and there. And there's just no strategy, no plan, no urgency created. No, you know, and you can kind of get away with that when you're raising from angels and like just bootstrapping and trying to get by. But if you actually need to build a team and scale your business, you have to get your your fundraising done and like just out of the way. And so the best way to do that also to get the urgency and get these investors excited is to create a timeline where, Hey, we're, we're fundraising right now. We, we plan to have things signed and funded by this date. You know, does that work for you? And just working against that date and having as many going full on, like you said, full time. Um, there is definitely a full-time job to fundraise because like you said, you end up having hundreds of meetings and that takes a lot of time. And it's interesting, actually, that the first investor you met with actually invested, because I think that's really rare. <laughs> I think that normally when you do your first pitch, it sucks. And you most of the time get a no. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the one of the, the last lessons we had, too, is that you'll probably know in that first meeting whether someone's going to invest or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they tell you or not, they probably they probably won't. But... <laughs> Within 20 minutes or 30 minutes, if, if you don't feel like they're going to invest, they probably won't invest. So what's your strategy in asking for the money? Because I think a lot of people don't realize you actually have to ask for the check and ask, you know, direct questions. And money is such a weird kind of like awkward topic, especially if you've never fundraised before. Asking mm-hmm. someone for money is really intimidating. And you're like, oh, I'll just wait for them to like send me the check or or tell me what they want to do. But you're the one fundraising and you're the one that needs to ask. So what have you kind of learned around the dialogue with investors? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the the first thing that's really important is doing your research before you meet with someone, understanding mm-hmm. What does their process typically look like? Do they write checks after one meeting, two meetings, three meetings? Uh, if they're an angel, like do they write $10,000 checks? Do they write $200,000 checks? Understanding that range, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part of this is, is really building out your process in a very thoughtful manner. Your goal when you're fundraising is to gain momentum. And so really what you're looking for is not necessarily the, the check itself immediately, but the commitment that the yeah. investor will participate in the round. And yeah. so making sure you ask very directly uh, and restate kind of what you've heard at the end of a meeting, either an email or verbally is, is really important. And I know really awkward. So if you end a, a meeting with someone who says, I'm interested in raising $100,000 or investing $100,000, make sure you send a follow-up saying, Lee, it was a great meeting with you today. Mm-hmm. Based on our conversation, I have you down for $100,000. We're planning to close this round in three weeks. I'll reach back out with formal documents at that stage and right. keep them engaged. Um, yeah. 
because you're essentially saving them a spot in your round. And so you're kind of, and that's kind of the whole mentality around fundraising is you're like going around to everybody and you're saying, Hey, do you want a, a ticket to the show? I'll save you a seat. Right. And it's like, they have to tell you verbally yes or no, so that you can save their seat. Otherwise it could be gone. And that's the whole kind of game around getting the round filled because also at every meeting you have, I think a lot of founders don't realize investors normally ask a very normal question of who's committed to the round. And you're like, what committed to what? And you're like, you know, that's what they're talking about is this, how many commitments do you have from who, who's going in on this, who bought a ticket to your show? Should I bother? And so it's really important to have like a roster of some people where you're like, yeah, I've got commitments from XYZ. Even if it's verbal, they didn't fund yet. It's not, the money's not in the bank. It's just part of the curation of the crew <laughs> to get the boat moving. That's, that's exactly right. And I think this is a lesson for us too, which is in our, the second time around raising, we, we, we were cognizant of this and understood that building momentum is our primary objective versus getting the check in the bank account. Yes. Um, and so what we were able to do more effectively was how do we go to investors that we know are going to say yes initially as tier one mm-hmm. and go to the second wave and say, look, we already have X dollars committed. Um, terms haven't been set yet, but you know, we'll come back on those once we have uh, a few more folks in the round. And then what you tend to find is that people will have their caveats of I'll only invest if it's at X dollar amount or with Y conditions. Yeah. Those caveats fall away once you have the actual dollars that you want to raise. And mm-hmm. um, that's also, I think, a, a good lesson for, for folks who are embarking on this the first time is don't get too caught up in setting evaluation or in some of the caveats that investors give you focus on getting the the dollar commitment and you'll find that the rest of those contingencies typically fall away as a round comes together. Yeah. So did you have a lead investor in your seed round? We did. So um, it's funny, the the lead investor for a round, her name's Carrie Rich. She is an impact investor at the Global Impact Fund. I've known her for seven years at this point. She's on my co-founder, Russ, for about 10. Mm-hmm. And I share that because we did not expect her to be our lead investor um, because she didn't even run an investment firm when we started our company. And so <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very rare to have an individual be a lead for sure. <laughs> yeah. And it uh, it's a lesson in, I think, you know, finding folks who believe in you first and foremost being mm-hmm. critically, critically important. And um, secondly, you know, you probably don't have seven or 10 years to build a relationship with most investors, but, at least think of it on a 6, 12, 18 month timeline. And your first meeting shouldn't be the ask for, for the capital in most cases, especially if it's a larger check. And, mm-hmm. but we've, we've known Carrie for a long time. Um, she's very aligned with our values or mission and has a strong focus in leadership development. And so for us it was a great fit to help us grow as founders, to help us build our ambition and building a more sustainable healthcare company. Um, and then knowing that, when times get tough, we, we've been there with her before and she'll have her back. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as much as fundraising is full time, when you're like actually raising, it's still part time every other day of the week after the round and before the round, because you still have to send updates to all of your investors and you want to send updates, all the highlights to the new investors that you're thinking about for the next round. So it's like you're constantly building a network of investors and you're constantly trying to keep them updated to build credibility, to build trust so that when you are looking to raise you it's so much easier and easy is a light word because it's still tough, but at least you've gotten to like first base, you know, <laughs> at least you've like built some kind of rapport with this person. So then when you're looking to raise, there's a lot more interest, hopefully. That's exactly right. And I think as long as, as long as you don't conflate meeting with investors with fundraising, mm-hmm. then I think it's a really effective way to, to be ready for your next round. Yeah. Absolutely. So this thing about a lead investor, I just want to go back to that real quick, just because I feel like whenever I see a company raise a seed round, a lot of them are not priced rounds and they think that they need a lead investor. And so I feel like there's this 
like connotation that you have to have a lead if you're raising a seed, but you don't need a lead fester for a seed round. Um, what are your thoughts on, on finding a lead? Because there sometimes is a lot of pressure because sometimes investors will just ask, like say you're fundraising for a seed, you don't have a lead investor and you meet with an investor and they're like, who's your lead? I've had a lot of founders tell me, yeah, I am trying to find a lead. And I said, why? And they're like, oh, because an investor asked if we have a lead. I was like, but that doesn't mean you have to have one, right? So um, what are your thoughts around, you know, I know your situation's a little different, but what are your thoughts around, you know, raising a seed round and having a lead or not having a lead? Yeah. If you think of the tactical intent of a lead investor, it's to help set terms and to mm -hmm. do the diligence on your company. Mm -hmm. uh, in a more strategic way, they should also be someone who knows a lot about your industry, can support you, and is going to go above and beyond what other investors do as well. Mm -hmm. But if we're thinking of a lead investor from the perspective of harnessing them to raise, uh, to enable your fundraising strategy, mm -hmm. your goal as a CEO should be how do you how do you figure out a way to make sure your company goes through like significant enough diligence that other investors feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. And how do you think about setting terms in a way that is fair and reasonable? Depending on your company, your situation, like your leverage around those things might vary quite a bit. If you are growing rapidly, uh, you have a competitive round, then you might be able to set your own terms and you might be able to find a couple investors just doing their own diligence um, and write checks within a week. On the flip side, if you don't have the ability to have that leverage, then a lead investor or a consortium of folks, which is more likely to be the case for most first-time founders, um, will need to set the price or effectively terms at some point. Even if you raise on a safer convertible note, there has to be a valuation cap, a discount, things like that set. Yeah. And I think what your goal is as a founder is just figure out a sensible way to set those. Uh, valuations are wonky anyways. It's at the end of the day, what two people are willing to pay for something. And right. as long as that number is fair for you and fair for investors, um, that's what your end goal is. And whether you need a lead to do that or not, I think it really depends on your company situation. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah. there is definitely this fallacy that you have to have a lead to raise capital. Yeah. And typically the lead will um, write the biggest check as well. So it's kind of, it's just like so many different ways to cut this situation. Um, skin the cat, I guess is what they say, but I hate that saying. Um, <laughs> it just feels so violent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your team. How big is your team today? And what has hiring been like? What kind of takeaways do you have or advice around hiring, hiring a great team? Yeah, so we have about seven folks right now. Uh, we are in the process of hiring other six or seven roles and then really have this network of part-time and freelance team members around us as well to support on more um, one-off or, or part-time projects. Really building a team for for us is, uh, for Russ and I, I think was quite difficult. We, we had worked together and still work together, obviously, for nine, 10 years at this point. Um, we do a lot of, I guess, what people would refer to as no-look passes. We understand like how to complete each other's sentences. And what that led to for us was a long time just being a two-person full-time company. Uh, and then eventually last August, decided to hire um, our first leadership team members. And I think first and foremost, what we're looking for is, you know, are they a cultural fit? Um, I think sometimes it feels am, am, uh, ambiguous. For, for folks, but what I would recommend is as you're going through this hiring process, like don't compromise on culture and make sure you actually document what that means for you. What are your values as a founding team? What are the values you want your team to live by in terms of like how they operate, how they interact with people inside and outside of your, your company, how they interact with your, your customers? And as you're going through the hiring process, the way that I like to think about it is not just evaluating folks for aptitude, but but also attitude more broadly. And I think to make that process fair and thoughtful, you have to have clear ways to identify, like, is this person a good cultural fit? In addition to, are they going to be good at this particular role and job? And so for us, I think, you know, establishing those early on is really critical to being able to bring on team members who have the values that are really important to us. How do you filter for culture? What are some of the questions that you 
ask in an interview to really make sure that they are, you know, have those type of values? What are maybe some questions you ask? For me, it's understanding how someone wants to personally grow in the next few years. So like, what are their personal ambitions inside and outside of work the next three to five years? What would they be proud of building? What are certain things that resonate with them? For us, we're in healthcare. Are there certain topic areas within healthcare they're passionate about? Um, you know, understanding their perspective on like, how would you feel? And what would you talk about if you called a cabinet customer tomorrow? And um, for folks who are like, I wouldn't want to do that. That's not my job. You know, for us, that's a clear metric of like not a good fit for our culture. Um, but I think ultimately, especially in this world where we have a lot more Zoom conversations and interviews, just creating enough time and space to get to know someone. And I think they're really methodical, tactical ways you can build a set of questions to evaluate for culture. For us, it's it's really been about just creating enough surface area in the form of conversations. Uh, what I like to really do too is have like different mediums of conversation. So for first conversations on Zoom, have a follow-up as a phone call and then perhaps like grab a coffee, really emulating the way that we'd actually work, which is across different like mediums and getting to know people that way. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, like trusting uh, existing team members to be beacons of that culture as well. So if we're hiring for someone who's an operations manager, having someone on our digital and analytics team actually meet with them as well, even if they're not going to be working directly together, to be able to provide this kind of objective feedback on, is this person a good fit for the way that we want to build our team at Cabinet? Mm -hmm. And what I find is that oftentimes in the hiring process, the pressure is there to bring someone on to, to fill a need or a role, or if you're like the direct hiring manager, knowing that you have a ton of work to do and you just want to bring someone in. And while that can often cloud judgment around cultural fit because we're all humans, what I found to be like a good check and balance on that is having a team member who isn't feeling some of those same pressures be able to give you honest, objective feedback on, on candidates as well. Yeah. So, you know, being a founder, building a business is super challenging. There's tons of mistakes that we make and failures along the way. What are, um, tell us about one of your most challenging moments and how did you overcome it? Absolutely. So there are a lot and there will continue to be many in the next few years and beyond. I think the, the one that we look back and laugh on now, but it was also probably one of our lowest lows was last March, we were gearing up to launch version 1.0 of Cabinet. Um, 30 over-the-counter medicines sold in kits by an allergy kit from us, cough and cold kit, you name it. And as we were leading up to the launch, we were really focused on building these stackable bottles that look nice, were cleanly in your cabinet and, and nicely branded uh, as part of this concept of how do we bring a nice, clean, convenient kit to your home. Uh, what we didn't realize is that building stackable bottles uh, was exceptionally difficult in the manufacturing world. And at the time, we were working with a couple of manufacturers in China. Uh, I'd gone and visited them, learning as much as I could about injection molding as possible, but very clearly being a novice in the space. And we spent months, I mean, probably four to six months trying to make basic bottles stackable before ultimately realizing it wasn't possible with this manufacturing partner uh, and scrapping it. Mm. And that was really frustrating because we just lost four to six months in like our launch timeline um, because of this idea that Russ and I were just thinking to ourselves, like, we're idiots. Why did we even try to do this? Um, if we brought on someone who knew what they were doing, perhaps this wouldn't have been a challenge. But ultimately, what it also highlighted for us was our frustration with plastic. We were so angry at these bottles that <laughs> we ultimately channeled that along with some of the personal stories I shared of pollution and being in that factory with bottles mm -hmm. into building a product that actually doesn't have plastic at all. And so for us, it was really frustrating because we lost six months of time. We put a lot of our love and energy into something that didn't work. Um, but ultimately, I think the lesson for us was how do we actually just build a net new product that gives us different frustrations, but gets us in a world where we don't have to use plastic. Um, and so I would say silver lining in that one for sure, but uh, that was definitely in the in the bucket of total failures as a company. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting putting a lot of love and energy into something that doesn't work is, um, you know, there's so many companies that fail, right? And and talk about, you know, going through a journey where you've built something and you have these ups and downs and it still just doesn't work. Failure is such a tough thing. And, you know, I wonder with these bumps in the road, what's, do you have a routine or activity or thought process that helps keep you positive and motivated every day? Uh, absolutely. I think the first one for me is surrounding myself with people who care about the same things and uh, whether that's work-wise or, or otherwise, I think um, to reframe that a bit, I think having a co-founder and team that actually believe in the same mission as you can push you on days where you're down, critically important, mm-hmm. but also having friends, family, significant others who like understand uh, what you're putting into it and can pull you out of this world is also super helpful. I think you know, we have this fallacy sometimes as founders is uh, of what we're building, feeling like oftentimes being the most important thing in the world, whereas yeah. the reality of it is you pull yourself out of the situation you're in. For us, over-the-counter medicine and building a more sustainable healthcare experience, it's what we're dedicating our lives to and is really important. But at the end of the day, it's it's one problem set in a much larger world of people who care about you and 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 hopefully love you as well. And I think what that does is kind of, for me, at least provide this grounding that the challenge that we're working on, you know, isn't going to make or break my life for the world. And, and that's kind of like a good reality check sometimes on tough days. And then other times I just need that push in the back from other team members who are like, no, we need to build this and you need to keep going. And I think that's been an important balance for me, but ultimately finding whatever works for you and your personality, I think is is the most critical part. And then the last thing I'll share is that um, we also got executive coaches a couple of months back and just having someone to have an agenda-free conversation with who's there for your personal development, who's there to help you work through business problems is, I think, been really powerful for us. Before we were able to bring on an executive coach, we had that in the form of kind of more personal mentors from investors uh, advisors, like sometimes even my literal family who I just call. So I think finding your network's really important, making thoughtful time to, to develop personally and, and have a venting spot also really important. Yeah. I think executive coaching is not spoken about enough. I think it's probably one of the most important things to have, especially as you're growing a business, especially for the first time when, you know, most people don't know what they're doing and everything's so new and you definitely need a place to go um, also for just personal development. How have you grown both professionally and personally as a leader? Yeah, I think uh, on the personal level, as as we've been building this company, just like the number of things to manage, whether it is related to the company or human emotions or just being like a supporter for our team uh, is pretty insane. Like anyone who started a company knows that it feels overwhelming. And I think personally, just learning how to manage that and being even keeled throughout it, I would say has been what I'm most proud of. I would say if you talk to our team, I'm definitely not someone who gets really excited or really angry or sad at any point. It's just very much like steady state. But I think that's been a learned behavior where understanding my role on the team is to be able to provide that steadiness in times of trouble or in times of good. Mm. And I think building resilience to things when they don't go correctly, I think is part of that as well. So uh, my reaction is quite different today than it would have been a few years ago when, when things don't go quite as planned. And I'd say on a personal level, that's been uh, something I'm really proud of. And then mm-hmm. on the professional side, I think is just understanding like how to not just be a founder, but how to be a CEO is a, is a huge transition that a lot of folks have to make. And they're very different. And understanding when you have to put on your team member hat, your founder hat, and your CEO hat at different times um, is, I think, really helpful because it requires... I think some intention, but it also requires understanding like the differences in the roles and what your team expects of you throughout those. And so I'd say on a professional level, there are fortunately a ton of resources out there um, for folks to learn some of those things. Uh, I find the NFX um, investment firms like series of like founder stories to be super helpful. 
Um, I think there are a ton of amazing frameworks out there for people to just think through problem sets. And then just talking to peers as well is a really powerful way to, I think, grow professionally. It's interesting you said the difference between founder and CEO hat. What is the difference between founder and then CEO? The way that I think of it very simply is that in the founder world, you are a builder. So how do you get whatever your ambition is into some sort of real manifestation, whether that's a physical product, software product, or otherwise? And how do you get that to a point where customers love it uh, and really just want to buy it uh, endlessly? So I think the... The Silicon Valley verbiage here would be how do you get your product to product market fit? Uh, and that is very much like founder mode, like build whatever you need, solve whatever problems you need, burst through brick walls um, with intention, but just don't give up on getting your product to where it's somewhere that you're proud of, that your customers love it, and that can grow. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the founder mentality. And the challenge with that is that that also is an impediment to your own business's growth at times, where if you do have product market fit, you do have customers like your product, being able to scale that is really difficult to do if the team members who are supposed to be the highest leverage ones are still very hands-on with customers and with product. And that CEO mentality is shifting from looking at specific KPIs around like how many customers are opening our emails to how many customers really love this to setting a North Star for the broader team. Mm-hmm. I think you know the way that many folks look at being a CEO, and, and I think I follow this mantra, is that I fundamentally have three responsibilities. The first is setting a clear vision for our team and the strategy that goes with that. Secondly, making sure we actually have the right team in place and making sure that they're taken care of, they understand where they sit in terms of how they're performing and where they sit in terms of how they're aligning culturally. Uh, and then third, making sure we don't run out of money or that we're making enough money to, to support that team. And I think within the context of like CEO mentality, it's those three check boxes. And I think that's very different than being a founder. And most companies, you won't have the ability to have those two as separate roles. And so understanding how to wear different hats at different times is really important as well. That's awesome. And a really um, clear breakdown. I appreciate that. I think that it's, uh, I agree with you completely, the difference between and transition of a founder into more of a CEO. Um, It's definitely like a shift in a role and responsibilities. Um, So thanks so much for sharing that. Do you have any other advice, you know, before we wrap up here for aspiring entrepreneurs as they're thinking about maybe taking the leap, quitting their job, whatever it is to start their next business? What advice do you have? I think this is one that isn't unique, but I but I do think it's the most important one, which is finding your why. So for me, what that's meant is that building this company is my opportunity to continue the legacy of my family in the world of medicine, to help people live healthier, happier lives, fundamentally by building a more sustainable healthcare company. For every individual, that why will be different. And I think un- understanding it and actually taking time to reflect on it and think on it before you you make the leap to starting a company is exceptionally important. Building a company is difficult. It's challenging. You're going to hit roadblocks. Things are going to fail. You're going to have amazing, exciting moments where you get to build teams and culture uh, and customers let you know they love your product. But the flip side is also present. And if what you're building and why you're building it isn't enough to help you overcome those moments where you're down, then it might not actually be worth starting that thing. And when you when you feel that you don't really care if you're going to hit barriers or failures or otherwise, and you're going to build that thing, I think that's when you found the correct why for yourself. And so my last kind of bit of advice is make sure that's clear for you and, and make sure you have people around you who feel similarly. Yeah. And it's totally okay if you go down a rabbit hole and you realize, you know, I just don't care about this. I actually experienced that recently. I was like, I had an idea for a pretty cool, like food concept brand D2C. And I went down this rabbit hole pretty far on like product development and ended up working with this product development firm that totally sucked and just sucked the life out of me. You know, they just sucked in every way. It was like, they couldn't put together a contract 
like customized. It's like, what are you doing? And then we just kept running into so many issues. They had so many internal complications and miscommunications. And I was like, get your shit together. Right. So anyways, it, they obviously were just like the worst partner, but it was so draining that by the end of it, I finally got a refund. Thank God for my money. Cause I was like freaking out, but I was like, I actually just don't care now. I'm so annoyed. I don't want to do this ever again. I'm just not that into this concept. (laughs) Because if I really cared, I'd go find another product development company to make this happen if I really felt like this needed to be in the world. But that was such a draining experience. That was a great learning kind of for myself to be like, okay, well, good to know. (laughs) I actually am just not that passionate about it. And I think that's important to go through actually is the ups and downs of like figuring out what it is that you really want to pursue um, because otherwise it's just not going to be very fun. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) So what is next for cabinet? Anything exciting coming up that you want to share? Yeah. So for the last two plus years, we've been working on building a product line that is completely plastic free. So what that means for us is the world of pharmaceuticals has only had one option, frankly, for the last few decades, which is get your medicine in plastic bottles. Uh, A cabinet, we're focused on changing that. In September, we're launching the world's first fully compostable, refillable pharmaceutical system. You can think of that as these glass bottles that you get your medicine in, and you get refills and compostable pouches that are shelf-stable as plastic, but as compostable as tossing away an avocado peel in your city compost pile. And for Russ and I as founders, our ambition has always been to eliminate plastic in this world. It's been a long journey and we're just getting started, but we're really excited to be able to bring that to our customers, to be able to actually acknowledge the fact that our physical and environmental health are inextricably linked uh, and play a role as a healthcare company to inspire an industry to actually evolve into a product system, product lines, packaging that actually don't negatively impact the health of their consumers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Achelle, for being on the show. It was so awesome hearing your really inspiring story um, and very informative on entrepreneurship and some great advice there. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.